just quickly start with prayer. As for God's enabling, Heavenly Father, would you give us ears to hear? We're thankful that you've given us your Spirit. May he teach us and guide us now into all truth. May your word be faithfully and accurately proclaimed. And uh, would you just cause us to uh, receive now the word of God and to apply it uh, to our lives, not just uh, not just think of this as some ancient words for a church that no longer exists, but um, it would be practical, helpful, and informative. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know if you heard of a lady by the name of Hetty Green. I put a picture of her on the screen for you, but many years ago, uh, Hetty Green was called America's greatest miser. She was called that, and she looks like one, doesn't she? Anyway, she was called that because I think at the time she was she was the uh, the nation's richest woman. When she died in 1916, she left an estate valued at 100 million dollars, and that was in 1916. That was an especially vast fortune for that day. But uh, she was called miserly because she was so miserly. She she reminds me of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. She. She would eat cold oatmeal in order to save the expense of heating the water. And when her son had a severe leg injury, even though she had this vast fortune, she took so long trying to find a free clinic that uh, her poor son had to have her leg amputated, or his leg amputated, because it had an, an infection in it. It was said that she hastened her own death uh, by bringing on the, a fit of what at the time was called uh, a plexi, or a, a apoplexy, something like that, is either a hemorrhage or a, or a stroke of some sort. And uh, how that happened is she was arguing the merits of skim milk because it was cheaper than whole milk. Therefore, she inherited the title of America's greatest miser. Well, the book of Ephesians is not written by Hetty Green, but it is written to Christians who might be prone to kind of treat their own spiritual resources uh, very much like Hetty Green treated her financial resources. She was a very wealthy person, (laughs) but yet she was very miserly. She didn't act like she was wealthy, right? And and I think some believers, maybe even some of you might tend to, to be this way at times. Believers are in danger of suffering from spiritual maltrition. And, and part of that is because they don't take the advantage of the great warehouse of spiritual nourishment that God has given to them. They don't understand the great resources that are at their disposal. And so sometimes Christians go around acting very miserly when in fact they're very rich. And Ephesians has been given wonderful titles Many other people obviously like the book as well. Here's some of the, the various titles that's been given. It's, Ephesians has been called the Believer's Bank, the Christian's Checkbook, and the Treasure House of the Bible. It's a beautiful letter uh, written to uh, Christians who telling them, hey, you, you, you are rich. You are spiritually rich. You have a great inheritance. You have this wonderful fullness in Jesus Christ It tells them what they possess, how they can claim that possession, and how they can enjoy their possessions. 
It's interesting, during the Great Depression of the 1930s, did you know that many banks would allow their customers to withdraw no more than 10% of their accounts uh, during that particular time period? Uh, they, were, they were concerned of uh, all their resources getting drained, and so the banks didn't, didn't have enough reserves to cover all the deposits. But the good news is, my friend, if, if you're a believer in Christ today, God's heavenly bank has no kind of limitations like that. There are no restrictions in the bank of God. No Christian, therefore, has reason to be spiritually deprived, undernourished, or impoverished. You are so rich if you're in Christ. In fact, a Christian has no reason not to be completely healthy and immeasurably rich in the things of God. And that's one of the reasons why I want to this year go through the book of Ephesians. See, the Lord's heavenly resources are more than adequate to cover all of our past debts, all of our present liabilities, all the future needs which God knows about. They're covered. That is the marvel of God's gracious provision for His children. He knows His children. He knows what you need. He knows how to take care of you. And in this epistle, Paul it's interesting, if you, and even if you look at chapter 1, verse 7, he talks about the riches of his grace. His unmerited favor is far above and beyond anything that we could even comprehend. And uh, chapter 3 talks about the unfathomable riches of Christ. Uh, it talks about the riches of his glory. And the book goes on to talk about that he calls the believer to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a, a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Chapter 5 talks about being filled with the Spirit. You're to be filled up to all the fullness of God, chapter 3 tells us. Do, do you understand you are to be full? You have great riches. This book is going to inform you of that. And so in this book, the word riches, in fact, is used five times. Grace is used 12 times. Glory, eight times. Fullness, or the word, or the phrase filled up, is used six times. And there's another key phrase in the book of Ephesians. The phrase, in Christ. Used 15 times. See, my friends, the point is this that Christ is the source. He is your whole sphere. He is the guarantee of every spiritual blessing and of all the spiritual riches. And those who are in Him have access to who He is and all that comes with Him. The Creator of the universe is rich. You have great spiritual resources because of that. Well, the first couple verses of Ephesians here, kind of like the, the greeting or introduction, but uh, please don't just gloss over these words. These are rich, important words as we look at today's introduction from Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. Look at this. Let's see what it says. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
simple message, I hope, today, but very important. First of all, we see the very first word in our English Bibles here tells us who the human author is, whom the Holy Spirit used to write the book. Notice it says Paul. Paul's the human author. And if you know your Bibles, according to the book of Acts in particular, his original name was Saul. Saul comes from the tribe of Benjamin and was probably named after Israel's first king, King Saul. Uh, He was the, the most prominent of the Benjamites. Saul here was a well-educated man in what today was called the humanities, but uh, some of you might know he was also a rabbi. And he, he, he studied under a very famous rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. You can read about him in Acts chapter 22. And he became an outstanding rabbi in his own rights. Uh, the Apostle Paul became a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling Jewish council there in Jerusalem. He also became probably the most ardent anti-Christian leader in Judaism. Acts chapter 22 again tells us just how zealous and passionate Paul was against the Christians. He passionately hated the followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible tells us he was on his way to the city of Damascus when Jesus Christ miraculously and dramatically stopped him in his tracks, blinded him, and brought him to himself. You can read that in Acts chapter 9. And then the Bible tells us that uh, Paul spent three years with Jesus Christ out in the desert of Arabia. And so Paul then, after that time period, went uh, to Antioch in the country of, of Syria, and he jointly pastored a church there in Antioch. Uh, there were several others mentioned in Acts chapter 13, so he wasn't the only pastor. There were others. But during the early ministry, Saul came to be known as Paul. God changed his name to Paul. The new man took on a new name. God often did that in Scripture. But from Antioch, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit sent him out with Barnabas to begin a great missionary enterprise. In fact, there were uh, three missionary journeys the Bible tells us about. At that point, Paul began his work as God's unique apostle to the Gentiles. Again, you can read about that in the book of Acts. But the Bible, notice how how it describes the apostle Paul here, because it, it actually says not just Paul, but it says Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. We need to understand what, it is, what is an apostle as we look at this glorious book together. See, an apostle was somebody appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's a recipient of, or you could say an authenticator of the New Testament revelation, the Bible. As Paul said when he was writing the book of Corinthians, he said this. He, he said he, he was somebody who spoke not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. So these are not Paul's words. The point is, these are God's words. And this is important as we look together at these words, at the text, because this means that the book that Paul wrote is not to be regarded as just another book written by just some mere man, but these are God's own words. 
This is God's revelation to you. It is from God, and therefore that means it's all true. It's speaking with authority. These aren't my words, they're not Paul's words, but these are God's words. However, in view of the emphasis we see in Ephesians on the sovereignty of God, his electing grace, which of course follows in these verses here, I'm inclined to think that, that in this letter, Paul's emphasis does not lie so much in the fact that he's an apostle, although he mentions that. That's a wonderful thing, but I think it's emphasizing more on how he became an apostle. We're going to see more of that. It, it was not, notice it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. How did he become an apostle? He didn't get to choose this. See, Jesus chose the apostles. Because notice what it says. He was an apostle by the will of God. You see that in verse 1? An apostle by the will of God. Indeed, if it had not been for God's sovereign will, Paul would not, not only have not been an apostle, he recognized that God chose him. But in fact, Paul has also recognized he wouldn't have even been a Christian if it wasn't for God's will. Left to himself, apart from the grace of God, he fought against God. He fought against Jesus Christ. Even The Bible even tells us he attempted to destroy Christ's church. So it was by God's will that he even came to know Christ and became an apostle. And by the way, we're not apostles. There are no apostles today, but there is, there's a great gospel truth here. See, the only way you and I come to understand and know Jesus Christ and understand the good news of the gospel is the same way, by the will of God. It's the word of life in Christ that makes this possible, but however wonderful the gospel may be, we would never have responded to it if God hadn't first called us from our sin to Christ, if we're going to talk about the basics of the gospel, my friends, as Ephesians does in the next few verses here, uh, you have to start at this point. And from the very beginning of this exposition, be sure that we, re- we need to relate everything to God. It's about Him. It's not about Paul. It's not about us. See, God called Paul. God called the Christians at, at Ephesus. And so, my friends, this, it's the same for any Christian. God calls us. God calls us if we are truly Christians. And it's interesting how God describes the Christians in Ephesus. Look what it says again in verse 1. It, it's, it calls them, the recipients of this letter are called saints. They're called saints. And by the way, the, the phrase contains three definitions of Christians, by the way. Not just saints, but look what it says. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. When Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on this, he called this the, uh, the irreducible minimum of what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, here's three definitions. Christians, number one, are saints. See, the biblical meaning of the word is is different from what others have made the word out to be. We, we have Sometimes we have misunderstanding of words. See, in Roman Catholicism, a saint is a particularly holy person 
who is exalted to be a saint, and they get to that position by by the, the church the church procedures that they go through. See, the person's nominated for the position. You don't just you don't get to call yourself a saint. You're nominated, and then what? Uh, in Roman Catholicism, my understanding is they have this trial uh, where they have an advocate pleading the virtues of the nominee, and then they have another advocate who is called the devil's advocate. You ever heard of that? And the devil's advocate, what he or she tries to do is tear the person down. Isn't that great? That's what they do. And so when the person's worthiness is properly established, he or she officially then is declared a saint. Well, similarly, the, the world looks upon a saint as someone... How do they see a, a saint? They, they, they tend to see a saint as someone who is just a good person. If they can see good people. Of course, this is far from the biblical idea. This is not what God means when he calls these people saints here. In the Bible, to be a saint just means that you are someone who is set apart. You're set apart. It's something God does quite apart from your human merit. You don't earn this. There is, you know, there, there's no devil's advocate going on here either, by the way. In fact, a Christian is set apart when God reaches down through the person and the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then regenerates the person, draws this person into the company of the church. So if you're in the church, you're a saint, according to God. So every Christian is a saint. Every saint is a Christian. Are we clear? God is the one who determines this. Every true Christian, by the way, is in some sense separated from the world. So you're separated from the world. The Bible tells us don't love the world or the things in the world. We're to love God with all. And so it doesn't mean that we are taken out of the world. That that is not the way that God operates. But it does mean that we're removed from it in the sense of we don't really belong to the world any longer if you're a Christian. See, the world's not your home. You're just passing through it, right? And so if you're truly belonging to Christ, then the Bible says you have a new nature, you're a new creation, you have a new set of loyalties, therefore you have a new mission, a new agenda, lots of new stuff coming with that, and you belong to a different kingdom. You're set apart. That's what a saint is. And so that's the first way to describe a Christian according to Ephesians. You are a saint. Number two, not only is a Christian a saint, but the Bible describes a Christian as faithful. Faithful. Now, as I was reading various commentaries, there are strange ideas out there, and some, some people think that this is some different group of people separate from the saints. Uh, I firmly believe that the saints and the faithful are the same people. Basically, it's describing Christians. Christians are faithful. Another way to describe the Christians. And so when Paul calls the believers here at Ephesus as faithful in Christ Jesus, he just has two ideas in mind. I think the first and primary meaning of the word faithful here is someone who exercises faith in Christ. Uh, in, in other words, um, 
It's a Christian who has he's heard the gospel, he's acting on it, he understands God's grace that comes to him through Jesus Christ, and then therefore he's exercising faith in the gospel. He's believed in Christ. So this faith has three elements. It's based on something. Three elements here. First of all, there's, of course, it's not a blind leap in the dark. Some people talk about faith as just blind leaping. No, there's an intellectual element to faith. Faith involves content. Notice it is faith in Christ Jesus. So for faith to exist, then that content has to be proclaimed. The content of the faith needs to be understood. But there's also an an emotional element in faith. And that's okay. God gave you emotions. You're made in His image. God has emotions, therefore you have emotions. And the content that's understood is really important. You say, why? Why? Well, it involves the death of the very Son of God for me. (laughs) I'm a sinner. That ought to cause me to have some emotional involvement in this. Should. So faith at this level then warms my heart. It, It draws forth a loving response to God, as it should for you. But third, there's also a volitional element here, my friends. See, having perceived and then understood the gospel, having been, I've been affected by God's love for me and my belief in His gospel, then a true Christian makes a personal commitment to Christ. It's a personal commitment to this one who died for me, who made the sacrifice for my sin. And there's a beautiful example of, the, of the, this third element, this volitional element. I think, for me, I love the story of the conversion of Thomas, the Apostle Thomas, you can read about it in Acts, or sorry, in John chapter 20 at your own leisure. But you remember, if you remember that story, at first Thomas had refused to believe. And then Jesus appears to Thomas. You, you know, he often gets called Doubting Thomas, the poor guy, right? But he didn't stay like that his whole life, did he? So, so let's not call him that, okay? So Jesus appears to him. Jesus did more than convince Thomas intellectually of the truths. Thomas just didn't know that Jesus died, but Thomas believed Jesus arose, that Jesus was resurrected. And so, what did Thomas do? Jesus, or sorry, Thomas touched Jesus. Jesus touched Thomas. And there was a commitment that was made. You remember what Thomas says? Thomas says to Jesus, what? When he believes, he says, My Lord and my God. That's a volitional commitment. <laughs> and so all Christians are faithful in that sense, and all who are thus faithful are Christians. But there's a second meaning to the word faithful. The second meaning has to do with you're continuing in the faith, uh, or, or as we might say, keep the faith, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It involves the idea of perseverance in the Christian life. This is, this is a Christian who is persevering. You're enduring all the way to the end. That's someone who is faithful. Jesus said in Matthew 10, He said it this way, He who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so, the perseverance 
of God in the saints. That's what makes them faithful. They wish to say that, that, uh, that the only reason why any of us are ever able to stand firm to the end is because God's faithful, first of all. And then God enab- he gives us the grace and the enabling to be faithful to him. We must be faithful. We must be faithful. And so it is therefore only proper to say that a Christian is one who is characterized here by, by being full of faith, and you persevere and you endure all the way to the end. That's a Christian, according to the Bible. But there's a third element mentioned in your text. Christians are in Christ. You're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're not a Christian. This is a very important phrase used many, many times in the book of Ephesians. It's it's an idea that, of course, we're going to deal with at greater length later on as we we come across it, particularly here in chapter 1. But uh, it's characteristic of the book of Ephesians. And it's also characteristic of Paul's writings. You see that phrase many times in his writings. In Christ, in him, or some equivalent uh, is used nine times just in chapter 1 alone. Very important phrase. In fact, it occurs 164 times in all of the Apostle Paul's writings. So you need to understand, what does that mean to be in Christ? Well, the phrases mean more than just believing on Christ, or it means more than just being saved by the atonement of Christ. They mean that you are joined to Christ in one spiritual body, so that what is true of Christ becomes true of you. Well, what is it? What happened to Christ? What, what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, well, read Ephesians. We'll get into this more, but it's wonderful. It is, it is truly awesome. And so on this basis, Paul goes so far as to say, in fact, in the, in the next chapter, chapter 2, he's going to say that God raised us up with Christ and has seated us with Him in the heavenly places. That's how big and powerful and awesome this truth is. But the Bible also tells us here the location. Where did this letter go to? There's a specific city that is mentioned here. In fact, from my reading, apparently it was the fourth largest city of Paul's day. So we need to understand a little bit about this city. Okay, because you'll notice it says that the recipients are the saints who are in Ephesus. They're in Ephesus. Now you can see that big star there is where Ephesus was. And if you are geographically challenged, that is modern-day Turkey. Modern-day Turkey, or at that time it was called Asia Minor. Ephesus was the capital of West Asia and as such was the political and commercial center of a very large and prosperous region. It was, it was considered the gateway from east to west. And, uh, and that's why the Apostle Paul spent probably more time there than anywhere else. Ephesus was on the Keister River, not far from the Aegean coast. You'll see uh, a PowerPoint slide here of uh, something of what Ephesus looked like. You see that that uh, there was a harbor coming into Ephesus where, they, where all the 
the prosperous commercial boats would come in and do their exchanging and trading and so forth. And so there was a large port there. It became the chief communication commercial link from uh, between Rome and the east. A lot of merchants would go to Ephesus. So it became a very, very much a melting pot of nations and ethnic groups. A lot of Gentiles were, of course, there. And so that's why, why Paul, being the apostle to the Gentiles, this was the place the apostle to the Gentiles needed to go to. Greek and Romans were there. Jews and Gentiles were all there mingling together in this melting pot. There were other things that were there as well. You can see on the screen some of them. Ephesus boasted the largest of all Greek open-air theaters. You can go and see the remains of that today, as you see on this, the, the next slide here. Uh, sorry, not that one. That one. Uh, of course, parts of it are missing. It, it was far bigger and glorious than you can see there, but at least the seats are still there. Large Greek open-air theater. By the way, when you read the book of Acts, just take note, because when Paul creates a stir and he's accused of shutting down the idolatry that's taking place in, in Ephesus, they took him right there where those people are standing. That's where Paul was taken, and he's surrounded by this mob of people who, who want to kill him, get rid of him. That's where he was, right there. It seated 25,000 spectators. Ephesus also had a very large stadium. They would have chariot races and various fights going on. However, Ephesus had something that the world at this time considered even better than all that. It boasted the great temple to Diana, or as the Greeks preferred to call her, Artemis. So the Romans called her Diana, the Greeks called her Artemis. You can see an artist's rendition of the temple of Diana or Artemis. Huge, massive place. Was, by the way, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Just to give you some measurements, uh, if you compare it to the Parthenon in Athens, Greece, it was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens, Greece. It was uh, it measured 425 by 220 by 60 feet tall. Sorry, I forgot to write down what that is in in uh, meters. But of course, it's called the Temple of Diana or Artemis because it housed a very large statue of this false god by the name of Diana, and she was to believe to have come down from heaven to this very spot. And this temple was also a, a, a depository for huge amounts of treasure. It was basically a, the bank of Asia, if you will. Okay, it, it served also because it was such a very wealthy and prosperous and important place. There were, some have said, over a thousand temple prostitutes. At least hundreds of priestesses to the goddess Diana. And it was to this city that the Apostle Paul came to preach. Not a very nice place in some respects. 
And the Bible tells us in Acts that it was briefly on his second missionary journey that he originally went here, and then Paul ended up spending a lot more time on his third missionary journey. And it was in this city that God was pleased to establish a faithful church. And to the Christians of the city who were attempting to live for God in in a place that was utterly pagan, the Apostle Paul directs this letter. The Holy Spirit had some special words for them. And what does he have to say? What's the very first words the Holy Spirit tells to these saints, faithful saints who are believing in Jesus Christ? What does he say? Well, look at the blessings that are given to them in verse 2. The blessings are grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a city that's very commercial, very materialistic. They were pagan, preoccupied with sex. They were very superstitious. So what what can keep Christian people living in that kind of an environment, in that kind of culture? What's going to keep them faithful to God? What can enable them to be saintly and to continue being saintly and persevering to the end. What hope do they have? There's only one answer, and it's what Paul says here in his greeting. And by the way, it's the same for you and me. The only hope they had, the only hope we have, is grace and peace. These people need to leave, so hope to see you later. And so we need, we need to understand, as this book goes on, we're going to learn a lot more about grace and peace, my friends. And notice the source of the grace is particularly from God the Father. God the Father. And so as the book goes on, we'll learn more about that but, and, and how we can relate in our own world today. But, but from the very beginning, there is no mystery about how we are to be. This happens by the will and the strength of God. God alone can help us. We have no other strength, by the way. We have no other enabling for this to even be possible. It is by God's grace alone that you and I can triumph and live in this kind of an environment. This was a, by the way, it was a common greeting among Christians in the early church. They loved those two words grace and peace. You say, well, what is grace? Well, grace gets described as all sorts of things, but grace is God's great kindness to people who are undeserving of His favor. Uh, Some have have described God's grace as, if you take the, the word grace and divide it up, as God's riches at Christ's expense. There is a There is a truth to that, but Grace is not just for an unbeliever. I hope you understand, grace is for believers. It's God's enabling in your life that makes all this possible. So to greet a Christian brother or sister in this way, you need to understand something. You're wishing some great things upon them. Paul's wishing great things upon these believers and, and us as well today. It's it's far more than just some general well-being. Oh, grace to you. 
See, it's far more than that. It's also an acknowledgement of the divine grace in which all Christians stand, in which He's made us mutual members of Christ's body, the church. And, and this, this is, you're part of the family when you're a saint and you're in Christ. See, grace is the fountain here. Think of it as the fountain of which peace is the stream coming from that fountain. And so because we have grace from God, the Bible tells us grace and peace. And notice it's, again, coming from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because we have the grace, first of all, then God gives us peace with Him. And then when you have peace with Him, you know what else you get? You get the peace of God, which passes all understanding. And by the way, peace is the equivalent of the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, which is shalom. Heard that word? Wonderful word, beautiful word. Shalom, the idea is it signifies spiritual prosperity and completeness. So it's, it's far more than just saying, well, you know, I hope you have a nice day. <laughs> you, you understand, it's, it's way more than that. Spiritual prosperity and completeness. And this is the blessing the Ephesians needed. And it is what we need as well. If we are to be saints, faithful saints, in a world that's gone mad, in a world that is without moorings, a world that is doing what is right in their own eyes, a world on the whole that doesn't know God, that is just doing their own thing. That's what we need to be faithful in a pagan culture. We need God's grace and peace. We'll elaborate more on that as we go through the book of Ephesians, my friends, but those are precious truths, precious words that we need to understand. So may God bless us with grace and peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word? Would you enable us to understand what is your grace, what is your peace? May we just kind of get into Paul's mind and heart a bit and understand that you made him an apostle. This is your will for his life. You have a will for all believers. and You make us saints. and You can make us faithful saints. All who are in Christ Jesus can be and are faithful saints. So may we understand these truths. May we apply them to our lives. May we understand the great resources and privileges that come with being in Christ. May we not be like Hetty Green and have all these wonderful spiritual blessings and do nothing with them. <laughs> Please forgive us when we do do that. We often seem to live as if we are very poor. But may we not do that. May we know just who we are in Christ. Open our eyes to these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.